The following podcast is brought to you by Babe Media. I'm Emma Clark. And I'm Kelsey Burdett. You know those people you follow that just seem to get it? They have the Instagram content that you actually watch. They own the brands that you just can't stop buying from. And they tell the stories you actually remember. The kinds of people that leave you wondering, how do they do that? Well, we follow them too. And we have the exact same question. Join us as we interview the people that leave us thinking, oh, they get it. Hi, everybody. This episode this week, me and Kelsey are literally like geeking out over it. Um, So we we were just chatting post-recording. We're like, okay, we just need to hit record and start talking because we're so fired up. So today we have on Maggie Sellers. She is an angel investor and brand builder. And I've known about Maggie for a while. I think just through like mutual connections. I've seen her on Instagram. She's one of those people on Instagram that you see their page and you're like, I just want to know you. Like you look really cool. You look really nice. And that's exactly what she is. Oh my gosh. And then as if that's not enough, you look at her experience and what cookie jars she's had her hands in and you're like, okay, I have a whole new appreciation. So I think what's particularly interesting to me is that she got her start in tech sales something Emma and I know a lot about. And she took that experience to pivot into brand building and working with companies before they were the big brand names that they've become and helping them get there. I think my favorite part though, in listening to her experience is she drops a little nugget on thinking left brain, right brain, and how both have served her. Make sure you pay attention to that part because I really think if you're earlier in your career and you're thinking about how you can increase your impact or at least potential for impact in the future, it's that nugget and how she phrases that that's going to be the key to unlock that next version. Absolutely. And I think it is such a good testament that like you can create any path you want for yourself. She really does a good job at hitting on that in this episode. And I think you're all just going to be really inspired by Maggie and what she's done. So let's get into it. Yes, let's do it. Welcome back to another episode. We're super excited for this one. Maggie has so much overlap with a lot of the brands we've spoken to, so it was kind of just serendipitous that we had her on the show. So today we're chatting with Maggie Sellers. She is an angel investor and also a brand builder. Maggie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited. Amazing. Okay, so we like to start off every episode with a high level. Give us the background. Give us your career story and what you're doing today. Okay, so my background, which I feel like a lot of people say is so unique, um, and I think that that is what makes people truly special. Um, So going like way back to my early childhood, I was always very entrepreneurial. So I started my first business at like age seven. It was Maggie's pet business. I was taking care of my neighbor's pets when they would go on vacation. And I know I love dogs and I always just was trying different things. Like in college, I was doing calligraphy on the side and wrapping people's Christmas presents and getting money for that. And so I was just very entrepreneurial from a very young age. And I had like a super wide range of interests. So when I was in college, I studied business and I took a minor in sociology. So really understanding like how people think and how groups think and why people make purchase decisions. So I ended up with a major in consumer behavior marketing to really understand like 
why consumers buy, how to like reach consumers in a super unique way. And I think that that really kind of set the stage to what I'm doing today. After college, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I feel like that's a very common thing. You're kind of just figuring it out. And I went to Salesforce, which looking back was actually very different than what I'm doing now, but set a really great foundation because when you work in a corporate environment right out of college, you really learn like what it takes to scale a business. And when you have 16,000 employees, how do you keep people aligned to the same mission and focus going into the wide array of things that Salesforce can do? So I did Salesforce for about two and a half, three years, and I was always one of the top performers, like focused on business development, but just kind of found that like my passion wasn't in tech necessarily. And so I had an opportunity and a little bug to go into my first startup. So I joined Freshy, which is actually from Toronto. And we love Freshy. It's so good. It's so convenient. And I think that's what I really like loved about it was being able to reach a consumer and a very back then when I was there, it was like still a little bit not mainstream as people weren't as focused on wellness and health. And I went in and I had a super unique role at the beginning. It was basically marketing analytics manager. So I just studied all of the marketing programs and how our stores were performing and the different initiatives and campaigns that we were running. And then really kind of drew massive conclusions about where we needed to make better decisions moving forward. And this was at the time that Uber and Grubhub and Postmates and everything that we now think is very standard were being introduced. So back then, we were a franchise business. So you're working kind of B2B and B2C. And I noticed that our same store sales numbers were not super accurate to where they were even like a few months prior. So I essentially started national partnerships or global partnerships with Uber Eats and Grubhub and DoorDash and found a huge discrepancy of our same store sales from our POS data and actually what we were getting back from our global partners and distributors now. And I ended up saving the company a pretty significant amount of of money because actually some of our franchise partners were not reporting the sales they were getting from their iPads into the POS where we made money on on a royalty. And so I got promoted and I reported to our CEO, Matthew Corrin, like right before we went public. And my job was just like kind of strategy, like thinking through all the different initiatives that we were doing going into the public markets, ended up launching a competitor, you could say to like a blue apron where people could actually get like a full day's worth of meals and be able to have it delivered from our different franchise locations. And that kind of set my career in a really good way because I'd had this big corporate experience at Salesforce, very scrappy startup experience at Freshy, and really learned how you take a company from the privately held space to the publicly held space. A lot of pressure. I think at the time I was like 23, 24. And that's when I actually got approached and got headhunted to go and be the first employee ever at a company called Dosist. So they're a Canadian-based or LA-based brand and they were launching in Canada. And I got recruited by a headhunter and basically launched the federal market um, going through legalization. And that was just like what really set my career on fire and also just moved me to LA. So after I launched the federal market in Canada, I ended up getting promoted and I was the head of brand underneath our CMO. And I worked in LA at Dosis for about 
two and a half years and oversaw everything from like global distribution, packaging, global expansion, product portfolio expansion, influencer, creative, like really just the whole whammet of what goes into a marketing team. And, you know, at the time, Dosis, we had raised $120 million. And so our marketing budget was pretty significant. We had a team of about 10 people that I was able to, you know, learn how to really become a great manager and how to really scale a startup that has a ton of venture capital money behind them. And I think through that, I was like, okay, this is super interesting. Like when people are giving you money, what you're doing with it actually makes a huge impact. And I was there for quite a long time and I felt like I had done everything that I could do to keep learning and keep exploring who I was and how to really build my career. And this was at the time that actually our former president of DOSIS, Josh Campbell, who's actually the founder of Human Improvement, Mm -hmm. decided to go and leave and start his new venture. And I know that you've had Miley on the show, who's amazing. We love Miley. I actually introduced Miley to Josh. So this is kind of how like I got into angel investing from like a more passion project because when Josh was leaving Dosis, he said to me, come and be our VP of marketing at Human Improvement. And I said, I don't think that's what I exactly want to do, but I would love to be able to come in and provide advisory to you guys. My passion is building a number of different brands at an early stage. So if I can be an advisor to you guys and help you build out the marketing team and hire the right people and help you set the strategy, that would make me feel super fulfilled and give me this opportunity to really take my career to the next level. So I think that was just the entrepreneur in me. Like I mentioned from the beginning, you kind of just make opportunities for yourself and you get presented with something and you're like, when you feel confident in yourself and who you are, you can really position things and and you're okay if it doesn't work out, but at least you tried your best. Totally. This actually reminds me, I just want to jump in really quickly. I'm reading a book called Impact Players by a woman named Liz Weissman right now. And she's talking about how impact players are the people who can look at the landscape in their companies, they can identify gaps and they're gap fillers. And I, yes. I look at your career and you shoot to the top so quickly. Talk to me about that, how, how being a gap filler applied and how you turn that into this like employment equity that you've been able to cash in 10 times over now. That's a really good point. And I think for me, So I'm actually ambidextrous. I'm both right-handed and left-handed. I think like very equally with my right brain and my left brain. So a lot of traditional angel investors or VCs, they have a very standard path to get there. They studied finance. They were investment bankers. Like they understand that world. And I think for me, I'm I'm a really big creative as much as I am analytical. And so I think for me, where I think creatively, where to relate to your question is seeing these opportunities and being creative about how they could be better, whether it's for the companies I'm you know, working with or whether it's for my own career. And then I'm very analytical in paving out a path of like how I'm, it's going to be mutually beneficial to both parties that are involved. So I think that like by looking at opportunities or just looking at situations, whether it's like a challenge that a brand is solving or whether it's a challenge I'm solving in my own career, taking that and looking at it through a creative lens first and foremost, and then going into the analytic side of like running ROI, running all the kind of like scenario playings that we do, that really helps me be able to really set that path where it's both creative and analytical and kind of everything that I do. 
you weren't following a playbook. Like you said, no. you've, seen, you've seen traditional angel investors, VC do it a certain way. And I think that takes a lot of courage and guts. How have you established your confidence? Do you think it largely comes from your experience and kind of seeing these things play out well for you? Or are there other things you attribute to it? So that's a really good and interesting question because so I'm 29 and I've always been very confident in myself, but I don't think that I've been deep down as confident as I portray to the market. And I think mm -hmm. I don't love the saying fake it till you make it, but I do relate to it in a certain way. I think it's more so just like trusting your gut and betting on yourself and knowing that even if you make a decision, you're going to figure out, even if it's the wrong one or you fail or you don't land where exactly you want to go, if you're confident in yourself and you feel like you're at least making a step forward, you can continue to grow and like create these different layers of where you eventually want to get to. So I think that it stems from just believing in yourself and believing in your ideas and also surrounding yourself with the people that want to see you succeed. I think I've been so blessed in my life by being very hardworking and providing value that people want to work with me time and time again. Like, you know, Josh Campbell, who had seen me and he actually was the person that hired me at Dosis. He then wanted to take me to his next venture. And it's super interesting. A lot of, you know, what I get questioned or asked about a lot is how do you find deals? How do you find these opportunities? How are you involved in nude sticks? How are you involved in, you know, Oza? And most often than not, it's actually through working with somebody in a previous life. And then because of like the hard work that I've put in and the value that I provide, these people that I've surrounded myself with that want to see me win continue to bring me opportunities because they want to work with me equally as much as I want to work with them. So when you were talking to Josh about potentially going down the human improvement route and he, and you said, maybe not this, maybe something else, where did the angel investing and the brand building come into play from there? Yeah. So with human improvement, like I said, I was not super interested in going in house, but I really positioned myself as kind of like my first advisory role. So at the time I didn't have like what a typical angel has, which is usually like a 25 K minimum check to put in, but I had time and I had value and I had my brain. And so I basically, you know, got my first advisory role where I took a certain percentage of ownership and equity in the company and provided value based on certain deliverables being hit. So kind of like, you know, even hiring Miley, connecting her, like helping advise her on the marketing strategy. Here's how you lay out your budget. Here are the different types of agencies that you should be working with. Here's how you grow this brand. And it was more so like strategic advisory versus day-to-day -day execution or operational. And once I had done that and provided some value, I was like, wow, I love this. This is so interesting. And like, it really allows me to continue down my path in my full-time career so at the time, I had actually been reached out to again by another company that was looking for kind of my skill set, which was taking, you know, a great foundation and then really scaling it and setting those business structures in place to take it to the next level. And this was a big pivot because it wasn't a brand per se. It was actually an entertainment management company. So they managed, you know, Post Malone, the Black Eyed Peas, 24K Golden, Ian Dior. 
and, you know, 30 or 40 other artists and producers and songwriters. And, you know, back in college, I was actually a promoter. So I booked Avicii's first show in Canada. I worked for Premier Life at Western. I booked like Alesso and Swedish House Mafia. And I've been obsessed with music. So for me, I was like, this is amazing. Like, let me try this out. Again, confident enough in myself to be like, I can figure this out. And if it's the wrong turn, I'll just go back to the brand world. But this is where I guess this whole world of investing actually got very like full-time role focused as well as kind of a part-time passion because I oversaw all strategy for the company um, and the artists that were underneath the roster. And one of my favorite projects that I worked on was actually building out a venture group for all of the artists that were on our roster to invest in early stage brands and then really help those companies use their entertainment power to grow their missions. So, you know, some of the deals that we did was like when I was there and launched this with the founder of the company was like Flow Water, also from Toronto. And if you look at the Post Malone Nirvana tribute concert at the start of COVID, you'll see Flow Water bottles all around where he's performing. So this is where I was like, okay, I'm now able to merge my passion with brand building and entertainment. And we essentially launched a venture fund where we were making investments into very early stage companies. And I was really learning like the proper due diligence process and, you know, everything that you're going through, because at the end of the day, it's not just my time that I'm investing. It's also people's money, which is a whole different kind of way that you think about things. And so when I was there, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Like, I love being able to help these early stage brands grow and being able to provide money and capital, which they need to hit their initiatives, as well as my own strategic lane of how I think about things. I feel like I'm kind of like now hitting my stride of where I want my career to blossom. So From there, opportunities just kept coming in because I think, you know, the biggest thing is if you, again, work hard, you provide value, that goes around word of mouth. People want you to be on their cap table. They want you to be involved because you provide so much value. And because I was able to provide capital through my full-time job, I was able to find this really unique way of doing both. And some brands weren't a fit for our fund and vice versa. And so I was really able to start carving out this lane. But on the angel investment side, like I said, most of those opportunities really came from people that just wanted Maggie, like my brain power, my ideas, my creative strategy. So the second brand that I actually got involved with was started by my former colleague at Freshie, Fenton. Um, We had very similar roles and he was launching Faculty World, which at the time, men wearing makeup and nail polish, very taboo. But because I worked in entertainment and was working alongside, you know, the Post Malone team, the Ian Dior team, I was like, okay, pop culture moves trends forward and society doesn't change unless the people that are in the mass look up to their influencers and look up to their idols and see what they're doing and then make these massive shifts. So I was like, I'm taking a bet on this. And that was my second kind of foray into angel investing and, you know, gave them a small check as well as, you know, a lot of time and and energy and connecting them with celebrities and entertainment. And that's where I was like, wow, I'm providing so much value and I want to do this and make this my full-time thing. I haven't heard of many people doing the advisory thing, taking equity and only providing value without having to cut a check. How common is that? So it's really not that common no. because 
Well, here's the thing. Most startups that are venture capital based are, they have an advisory board. That is very common. But normally the advisory board is very high level, you know, experienced professionals that have spent 25, 30 years in an industry, know the industry super well, can make really great connections for the founders, can open doors. So, you know, if somebody has worked at a company where they've launched in Target and Walmart and they go on to an advisory board of a very early stage brand, they can then open those doors for people. But, you know, being able to bring somebody onto your cap table when it's not necessarily a large size check is a lot of work and actually a lot of money for a founder because it's legal costs. It's, you know, having another investor that you have to list and be responsible for. But I think, where I provide a lot of value to founders, and I have about seven different kind of portfolio companies under angel investing, you know, they see the value as me being super strategic, but also able to really partner with them and not just give them introductions or give them connections, which I do, but really help them think through massive challenges that they're facing, help them structure out their team, help them hire the right people, help them think creatively about how they should bring a new skew or a new category to market. And so it's not traditional, but I think that it's a very strategic thing that founders can do if they can find somebody that has that experience, but isn't at the level where they're not interested in getting into the weeds. They actually, Mm -hmm. like for me, I actually love helping founders. Like I love thinking through the problems that they're having and almost acting in my brain as if I was an employee and this was my baby But at the end of the day, I then get to do that for a number of different companies because I didn't choose to go in-house somewhere. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's really smart for the companies as well because me and Kelsey did an episode a little while ago about all the Glossier layoffs and the Peloton layoffs and how they get all this money and then they hire like crazy without necessarily thinking through. And so I think being able to find people like you who they don't have to hire full time, but can still get that expertise and that guidance. I think it just seems like a win-win. And I think I'm just so happy that we're sharing your story because I think so many people look at the world of investing and it just seems so daunting and maybe they're interested in getting into it, but it seems like a huge black box. So I think it's really great to hear that you know, there are different ways of doing it. You don't have to be writing a 25K check all the time. Um, It's just, it's so, so cool. Lots of respect for what you're doing. And there's also just like so many amazing things that I'm starting to see. Like, it's funny, I just started posting on TikTok about this because I think a lot of people have always been like, how do I define you? What's your career? Like, how can we work with you? Like, you seem to be doing so many amazing things. And I've never really, like, this is the first podcast I've ever done that really goes into my background but I did start posting on TikTok about all the brands that I'm involved in and, you know, how I got in. I actually have never talked about how I've gotten into it, but I've talked a lot about being an angel and being in a fund capacity and, you know, how I've, you know, how I look at businesses or which ones I'm involved in. And I think that what people most often I'm seeing is that the world of venture capital is so glamorized and, It is in a certain extent, if like you are passionate about funding and seeing early stage businesses grow, it's a great career for you, but there aren't that many entry opportunities like, you know, to get a role as an analyst or as an associate in a world-class venture fund is actually very difficult. And so for me, 
I, I don't know if I ever really saw that as my path because I am so entrepreneurial. I couldn't picture going into a venture fund and being an analyst or being an associate. Like I love to lead. I love to create. I love to help. And so being front facing to me was always very important with the founders. And so I think from there, I was able to really carve out this, okay, I have 10 years of experience in my career building brands some of whom have gone public while I've been there, some of whom have raised $120 million and been the market leader. Like I have a wealth of experience and I have a wealth of um, expertise to lend to founders. I'm going to carve out my own lane. And I don't even know if, you know, people listening to this are going to be like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But I think what I want to encourage people to do is just think differently, like think creatively about how you can get involved in early stage brands and make that your reality because no one carved a path for me. I never saw any other people do this, but I carved my own lane. And I think that that can be true for anybody that wants to really have the underlying passion that they have be just helping early stage brands grow. I wouldn't suggest somebody get into venture or to angel investing if they're not genuinely passionate about helping founders because that is the part that's not glamorized, but that's the real purpose of why we're in angel investing and in venture capital. 100%. And you think about capital as a commodity. They can go get money literally anywhere. How you differentiate yourself is by going that extra mile and being in the weeds and being passionate. So I love it. What do you think, or actually, I'm going to phrase this question differently. What do you wish more people knew about angel investing? So I wish that people with angel investing knew the risks that were attached to it first and foremost, because I think, like I said, this is such a glamorized industry and everybody is an investor and everybody's helping these brands, but there is actually a lot of inherent risk in it. Like most startups fail. And so I think that for people to not glamorize it as much, but really think through, if I'm going to put money into this company, how can I create disproportionate advantages for them to win? And I think that's what I look at all the time where it's like, it could be a great company. And I'm like, I can't really provide that much value to you. Like if it was a even consumer tech company, it's a space that I love to invest in, but I'm not as strategic as I am with consumer brands because of my expertise, because of my relationships. So I think that when people are starting to look at angel investing is, okay, if this is you know my first angel investment, where can I create disproportionate value to this founder to almost protect my investment and protect the way that I'm actually helping this business grow? I don't think people talk about that a lot. I think that mm-hmm. people just say like, oh, this is a great company, put 10K into it. You know, actually just was over the last week having this really, really, really hard decision on this new company that I'm thinking about potentially investing in. And everything is like, you know, numbers wise, distribution wise, founder wise, like I should do this. And there's something in me that's like, I can't help this founder because it's not in my lane of expertise as I could with something else that I'm going to save that 15K check and put it towards a founder where I actually can create that disproportionate value for them. Kelsey, do you want to jump in? (laughs) Could you tell? Um, Yeah, just really quick on that, because I think it's so interesting to hear how you think about things. Historically, you've gone outside of your lane and you found success. How do you know when to go out on a limb and to push yourself a little bit versus when it is something that's just not worth your while? 
So for me, I have an investment thesis now because we do run a fund. And my investment thesis is I typically like to work with businesses that are stigmatized or like very innovative. So like cricket protein, human improvement, that is not a very common thing that you find at the grocery store. Um, You know, faculty world, men's nail polish, also not something that's very standard. Like because of my training at Josist, I learned and have a specialty in how do we change consumer behavior first and foremost, which by the way, is very expensive because it's a lot of education that you have to spend in your marketing. You're having to train consumers that this is actually a commonplace thing that is going to be popularized. And so for me, my investment thesis is, okay, I like very stigmatized or very different types of companies, and that can range across consumer packaged goods. But those types of trends, I really feel like I have a disproportionate advantage to offer to founders. And then the other lane that I really kind of merged that investment thesis with is pop culture. Because I worked in entertainment and saw firsthand, you know, how celebrities are thinking about things and I have all these amazing connections, I understand that society won't change unless pop culture, icons, and influencers push it forward. So for me, that's where I really see, okay, is this a company that is doing something that's stigmatized or untraditional or unique? And is this something that actually is starting to pave its way and the theory of thought into this pop culture lane and connection that I have? And if that's a fit and both of those tiers are there, I'm like, I'm all in on this because I can totally create this advantage for founders and and think through how do we work with this person? How do we tell this campaign story? How do we be able to see this idea actually come to fruition in the market? Okay, I want to pivot it just a bit because um, we do have a lot of like early stage founders in our audience. So for brands who are looking to get funding, whether it's VC, whether it's angels, what is some advice to them um, to help them stand out and to help them get that investment? Or what are some things that you see people doing wrong a lot? Okay, great question. And so actually, this is a really other good point I want to say to preface this is so I'm the type of investor where I'm reactive as much as I'm proactive. So if I always think my favorite saying is earn the right to grow. And if you are focusing on your business and you are seeing success in the market, VCs will come to you like VCs will seek you out and be like, you're doing something amazing because like you are earning the right to be able to, to get a call from me. I have reached out to so many founders on Instagram DM being like, I love what you're doing. And I feel like I can create so much advantage for you. Like I want to have this conversation. And a lot of the time they're not raising money yet, or they haven't even really thought about it, or they're through, they're through series, depending on what stage of the business that they're at. But it's at least starting that relationship on a very like proactive way as a VC, which obviously is very helpful for founders. But on the more reactive side, and this is definitely the most standard type of way that founders are looking about bringing capital into their company, I think for me, it's like being super diligent about who's on your cap table. Because like you said, Kelsey, there is an influx of capital right now. And who knows what will happen in the future with what's going on in like the macroeconomic world. But right now, founders have had the opportunity to really pick and choose who they want on their cap table. And for me, there's so many different types of capital out there 
that I think being super strategic about not just getting any money, but like, who do you actually want that's going to be able to open doors? There's so many amazing VCs now that have sections of their business where it's like a PR arm or a content arm or an influencer arm. And so if that's really important to the stage or to the company that you run, being doing your research and understanding who those venture funds are first and foremost, so that you're not wasting your time just reaching out to the big names that you hear about, but that actually fit your stage, fit your industry, have a track record of success in the um, industry that you're operating in. That's the most important thing. I think when you're reaching out to VCs, it's like, keep it one really short and sweet and find some common ground. Show that you've done your research. Like even if it's somebody that reaches out to me and says, wow, I'm also a Canadian that moved to the US and I'm starting a business. Like that to me already is like, wow, she did her research or he did... By the way, I just love that I said she is my first thing because yes. I'm very passionate about female founders. Um, and more often than not, a lot of my angel investment, you know, safes or advisory contracts are always listed as like he. And my lawyer is now like, I'm so sick and tired of these companies literally assuming that you're a man. Um, <laughs> sorry for that pivot. Um, oh my gosh, no, I feel you. <laughs> never be sorry. That's so amazing. I love it. But yeah, so I think for me, it's like, doing your research and finding that common ground and ensuring that it actually fits with the portfolio and track record that your founder, that your venture funds that you're reaching out to have had. Like you almost devalue your brand if you're in the consumer packaged goods space and you're reaching out to like a tech venture capital fund, like not a fit at all. So mm -hmm. I think keeping it super short and sweet, grabbing their attention, finding common ground, like being super confident in who you are and really just going after it. And I think that what venture capitalists look for is people that are going to make it happen. And we know that like there are going to be so many pivots, so many bad things, so many startups fail. And often if you fail as a founder and you have a great like group of VCs, your next company, more often than not, they're going to double down and bet on you. Because if it was something that failed because it was out of your control, it was industry, it was the time of the year, it was COVID. Like if you were the type of founder that was doing everything possible to make that business successful, those venture capitalists are going to bet on you time and time and time again. And then the Second part of your question, I think, was what to avoid. Mm -hmm. I think for me, just avoiding raising money just to raise money. So yes. I have a really big thesis, which I'm, I think people may agree or disagree with, but we only have 24 hours in each day. And I do believe in work-life balance. And I do believe that founders, if they're not taking care of their mental health, there will come a point where they won't be able to be a successful leader in their company. And that's when a lot of problems start happening, like you just said, with Peloton and Glossier. And for me, I think that when founders are raising money and are not trying to solve one challenge a quarter, I almost am like, but what are you raising money for? Like, have a really clear idea of what challenge you're trying to solve per quarter. Because in my belief, I don't think companies or people can solve more than one huge challenge a quarter. Obviously, there's going to be things that you're doing on a daily and a weekly and a monthly basis. But when you're going out to fundraise, having a super clear plan of like, why that much money? Why is your valuation at the stage that you're saying it's at? What are you going to do with the money? And have you almost like 
pre-done your plan, almost go out to fundraise as if like you have the money and all you need to do is raise it. And then you're going to go and execute on that plan. Do most people not do that? It's shocking actually, like that people don't have a clear thought out plan when they're going out to raise money. I think that people almost like figure it out as they're raising money and as venture capitalists are, are asking questions But it is shocking to me how many founders don't have that clear laid out, like, we need this much money, and this is what we're using the money for. Mm -hmm. Another, like, for example, founders that come to me that are raising to fund inventory with equity, I'm like, I'm out because you should be at the stage where if you're raising money to fund inventory, you're at least thinking through debt. That should be like your first thought when you're using money to raise for inventory purposes, like equity should be really used for the growth of the company, whether that's people, whether that's, you know, marketing, whether that's an office space, because you need that, the equity side of your business should be treated so, you know, in high regard and special that when founders come to me and they're like, I'm raising this for debt, I'm like, okay, then we're not aligned at all because that's not a, a, a pillar that I invest in. I just want to clarify for everyone listening to this. The reason Maggie says this is because equity dollars are your most expensive dollars. They are the dollars that you spend that you cannot get back. And so using it for things like inventory or even marketing spend is not a great use of money. You should be using it on headcount or taking down big pillars, things that are actually going to make a lasting impact on your business. So I just wanted to clarify that because your point is spot on. Yeah. And I think even to clarify that a bit more, I actually do think people should use equity for the marketing side of things because debt financers will really give you money for things that are a sure thing. So inventory is a cost that God forbid, if your business you know fails, you actually can sell that inventory and give the, lo- the financier, the debt loaner, the money back. So when you're raising with capital for equity, those are things that are not a sure thing. We're not sure what this employee will do. We're not sure what this marketing campaign will do. And so using equity and giving up a piece of ownership of your business as a founder, like those are things that a debt financer can't quantify and can't feel secure that they're going to get back. So if you're an early stage founder that's thinking through the growth of your company, Try to think of it of like, what's a sure thing that I could, God forbid, be able to repay to a financier? What are the things that are less sure, but like, if this works, this is going to take this company from here to, you know, 10 times growth. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I just have to say too, I love that we're three women having this conversation. Cause like you said earlier, Maggie, I feel like it's usually dudes who would record a podcast about this stuff. And I don't know, for me, like I just... I don't get as much out of the conversation when I'm listening to guys versus women. I feel like it's more relatable. So this is just kind of a pinch me moment. I love that we're having this conversation. And honestly, to to jump in on that, I think, listen, I get goosebumps talking about how powerful women are because like we do it all. And I think the challenge that we see is like, I think the stat now based on Mark Cuban on Shark Tank last night is like 9% of women that get venture or 9% of people that get venture money founders are women. And to me, it's because if you have a traditional kind of like women, you know, marketed brand, makeup, beauty, these massive companies, and you're pitching to only males in a room, they actually don't understand the pain points that you're trying to solve as a founder, like a woman would. And I think that there's a number of reasons for that. I think people can put themselves in other shoes. They just don't. 
But I think that for me, it's because there's not a lot of women around the table that are making investment decisions. And so for me, I do have, I did start out my angel investment career, very much male, you know, founder focus. And I think that was just a lack of connections and expertise and a women's founder circle. And over the last six months, I would say I've pretty much only put angel investment checks into women founded companies. And that to me is so powerful because I'm now able to really be able to put myself in this founder's shoes and understand what problem they're solving and be able to give them the capital to grow. And it's been honestly like the most rewarding thing for me over the last few months, like just being able to every call is like a woman now. And I'm like, this needs to happen more. And that's why I'm excited to be on this podcast to share a bit more about my story to encourage more women whether somebody like has a dream of starting a company or a dream of being in VC, it's like, let's encourage more women to empower other women to do that because we need more women decision makers that are going to open up capital for women founders to go and make a huge difference and be able to level the playing field of women in these positions because it just doesn't happen that often. Completely. And it just feels like, like let's make it that for products in our target market, they're created by female founders and they're funded by women who would also use those products. Like, I think it just makes sense. And it's weird that it hasn't been like that, but we can shift it. How hard could it be? Right. A hundred percent. And I think the thing too, for me is that, you know, it's funny. I actually had one of my mentors, um, talk to me the other day. She's a woman. She was the first women CEO of CBC actually in Canada. And she was saying to me, she's like, I love that your portfolio though, isn't only women, like traditionally women branded things like makeup, like jewelry. Yes. Like I've invested into a lot of traditionally like male dominated industries like gaming or tech or science, consumer science. Um, And for me, I think that's something I've been really diligent about recently is like, how can I really expand who I'm investing in that are that actually put me in a new lane. And maybe I am the only woman in this room filled with men. But at least I'm starting to pave the way to not just focus on like, traditionally women or feminine industries, like really things that traditionally, you don't see a lot of women in these industries. And I think that's something for me that I want to continue to do. Because we need to break down barriers overall in the market, but also then take it a step further. And even the segments that we're investing in is like paving a way for more women to go in and and go into that lane as well. I sat on a panel, I guess it was two weeks ago now, um, because I lead sales teams and a woman in sales is, I feel like akin to women in VC. It's just not very common. And I was so disappointed by some of the questions I received that were so like surface level. And I'm like, you would never ask dudes this. So I love the fact that we're being intentional here. Um, When you think of the landscape in general, what do you think the emerging segments are or what different types of industries are currently catching your eye? I think for me, it's interesting because obviously we just had COVID, right? And so, you know, there's just so much unknown in the world. And I think that people, for me, what I'm really passionate about is like, everybody living their best life, health and wellness will always be like the number one thing that I'm interested in. Like what are really creative ways that like people can live a better life? So I think that's the first thing at a very, very, very high level. I think, you know, that can even be segmented down to like non-alcoholic beverages. Like has somebody really won in that space at a mass level 
No, but that's something that I think is going to come. People making better decisions. Like I have invested in a lot of companies that are better for you, but I think that can extend what I want to look at now is better for you that meets tech. Like how can we create companies that are better for you that actually are very much more easy to scale because when you're dealing with inventory, it's very difficult. Um, so tech that is better for you, I think is super interesting to me. I think that freedom of expression and people coming out of COVID, things like faculty world where you're empowering people to be themselves, whether that's through their you know, clothing, whether that's through their beauty, whether that's through their, you know, way that they're expressing themselves. I think individual expression is a really big part coming out of COVID because people have been trapped. They've been cooped up. They haven't been able to express themselves. So I think looking for platforms and for companies that are really trying to help consumers empower themselves to be themselves is something I'm also passionate about. The other thing that I've been starting to think about a lot is connection, like real digital connections. I think Obviously, it started with dating, things like Tinder and things like Bumble. And I think for me, it's like even friend connections, even things like this. Like how do we build – how is somebody going to build a platform that's that's going to connect maybe early stage founders that don't have any connections to VC or early stage founders that are looking for amazing talent? I think what's out there to date doesn't solve the problems, I think, that surround real life connection. Like – Going through COVID and not going to conferences and not networking in person, the tools that are out there like LinkedIn or Indeed or virtual panels, to me, like they're not as I think where they could be to take real life connections and make them digital. And I think that for me, I'm really passionate about finding companies that are building platforms to try to truly mirror real life connection on the digital lane and help founders or help people connect with people that aren't in their circle. So if somebody were to come up with a a company that's like a Tinder or like a a Bumble for VC and founders or connecting HR, like I would be all in on that because I think Mm -hmm. that's a lane that no one's really been able to solve yet. I was going to ask you for examples and you got there on your own. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pivot into our quick hits to wrap up the episode. So first one, what trait do you most attribute to your success? My trait that I attribute to my success is never giving up. I think that I've been told no so many times. And like I said, I've never had somebody pave this path for me. And I have failed. Like, you know, I, I, I've tried different things. Like I've even calligraphy back in college or being a promoter. Like those weren't the things that set me up for success. But I think that drive of like, no matter what you face, if you don't give up on yourself, you're going to be successful. And so I think that just that drive of wanting to win and wanting to succeed and wanting to make an impact, like I'm not doing this for glory or for money. Like those are things that are amazing and do have some importance. But for me, like I want to leave the world in a better state than the way I came in. So for me, Failure is a stepping stone to that. So don't give up. And I think that for me is what really sets me apart and continues to fuel my fire, even on the days where it's like, I do experience failure or I have screwed up, like just keep going. What gives you energy? So, okay. Something that people don't know about me because I'm very extroverted. Like I love people. I thrive in people like this to me, like I'm smiling so much right now because 
I got to connect with two women that are freaking amazing that I didn't know before. So I love to be around people that gives me energy, like making connections, making deals happen, like, you know, getting out there and getting after it. But I'm also very introverted. And I think this is something that when I lived in my past life, when I was like really the head of brand of you know, crazy company, I was flying every two weeks back and forth from Toronto and LA and I was going to events and I was going to investor meetings and I was doing all these things. I was so busy and I didn't have time to think. Like I did not have time to think through what the world was going through and how I could really take a step back to take 10 steps forward. And so for me, having that introverted time to like really think and really be with my thoughts and like think through what I thought about the world and learn something new, like that is equally as important to being busy. And so Mm -hmm. for me, I think being able to energize myself through that, you know, hustle and that hard work and those connections and those deals, but also taking the time to really think and energize myself. That is where I found that true balance of like how to be the best version of myself. Next question. What advice do you have for your younger self? My advice that I have for my younger self is I wish I had put myself out there more I, front facing. I think I have always put myself out there where if I failed, like it was only a failure to me and I could learn from it and like continue to grow. I don't think I put myself out there with what I was doing. And I think seeing even just me doing that on TikTok, I'm like, damn, I think I would have been so much further ahead if I wasn't afraid to fail in front of an audience as much as I wasn't afraid to fail for myself where I could almost like own the narrative of that failure. And now I don't care to fail in front of people. Like I genuinely don't. Okay. I'm almost 30. Like I just have to like go at this now. And I wish I had done that like in my early twenties, cause I was doing such amazing stuff back then, but I was like, so afraid to like put it out even to celebrate my success. Cause I was like, what if I fail? And then that like decredits what I did. And it's like, no, that failure is only going to get you to the next point. I just wish I had done that more front facing and I wasn't afraid to fail in front of people as I am now. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reason that we never hear people looking back on their lives and their careers being like, I wish I stayed smaller. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. And no. so it's really good to learn early and like 30 is nothing. There's still so much life ahead of us that we might as well just do it. Um, are you a reader? Yes. Yes. What's the last book you read? So I actually just reread two books, which I don't really do that, but I actually hosted a women's female founder lunch, I guess two weeks ago now with like such amazing female founders and one of them knows me very well and knows I read. And so they were like picking my brain about which books they should read. So I read, I reread Radical Candor. Um, you guys are, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think she definitely paved, Kim definitely paved a way as being kind of like the first female executive at Google. And I think for me, what I've also noticed, even through like we've mentioned the Glossier and the Peloton layoffs is like leadership and how do you like manage a team? And so as my portfolio grows from like very, very, very early stage, almost pre-launch to more like global companies like a Newsticks, management and leadership and people management is like even more important than it was when you're super early stage and just scrappy and you have a team of like two or three people. So that's a book I just reread. And then I also... Um, just reread Blue Ocean Strategy, which I recommend everybody read. It basically, 
the thesis is when you think of competition as like a sports game with an end, you know, start and finish time, and there's two teams and one person has to win and one person has to lose. That's like not real life in business. There is no start and end time. There is no competition. You win, I fail. And if you look at your competitors and you're just trying to benchmark against them, you're not operating in a blue ocean strategy where everybody can win. So if you're a founder and you know, you've been working for two years, let's say you're in the bathing suit industry, you've been working for two years on activewear and your competitor puts out activewear a month before you, like a blue ocean strategy way of looking at that is like, okay, great. Like my, you know, this is how we differentiate, but this is what I'm going to do next. And this is like how we're going to win. And this is our business. And these are the details that we thought of versus thinking of them as competition. And that like, you're kind of paving this like inner competitiveness in your own industry. So blue ocean strategy is a definitely a really important book, whether you're in any career, founder, venture, corporate employee, I highly recommend that book as well. Okay. I haven't read that one, so I will add it to the list. And I think it is important because you see new brands popping up every week, especially in the beauty space, the skincare space, the apparel space. And I think it can be really overwhelming if you're about to launch something. So yeah, that sounds amazing. Okay. Final question for you, Maggie. Who do you think gets it? Who do I think gets it? Um, I actually am going to build up my sister because she is a genius. So she is the VP of finance and strategy at Missouri. Um, love it, but she's also very, a unique person as well. She's not ambidextrous, but you know, she's an amazing visual artist. And actually, again, talking about our own failures is like back in college, we started a blog, Instagram, like influencer thing together because she's very creative and like loves taking photos and actually our first brand deal was with Missouri. And she obviously is, you know, CPA trained. She's now the head of finance at Missouri. And so for me, I think seeing her blossom her career from like being passionate about jewelry and creating and, you know, that type of realm to now running the finance team at that company that we got our first brand deal for. It's a really cool story. And I think a lot of, again, traditional VPs of finance are males. So to see her combine her passion of like that artistic, creative, beauty, like women feminine lane with finance is like so inspiring to me. And I just think she fucking gets it. It sounds like she gets it. Absolutely. What's her name? Katie. Katie gets it. Yeah. If you're listening, hi. <laughs> She'll definitely listen. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, we are over time now, so we will wrap it up there, Maggie. This was so much fun. I'm serious when I say we should have a yes. part two with you because I agree. This is just amazing. <laughs> well, you know what we could do too is we could do a part two and I can bring one of my founders on and we could talk about all the different ways that we've worked together. So if that's interesting to the readers or to the listeners, then they should tell you guys and I'm happy to arrange one of my founders to come on with me. Let's do it. That sounds absolutely perfect. We will, yes, we'll be in touch. And thank you again, Maggie. Thank you guys so much. I'm so inspired by you both. And I'm just grateful to have been able to talk to you. How much do we love Maggie? She is so smart, so easy to talk to. And yeah, she just exceeded my already high expectations of her. Um, So such a fun conversation. I think one really applicable takeaway for me for no matter what you're doing is your network is everything and really focusing on 
being a good person and doing things for others, having integrity, being kind, working hard, that gets you so far. Like when I think of our early cohort of Shopify colleagues and what we've all gone on to do, people are starting their own companies or they're holding senior roles at other companies. You look and so many of us have taken each other along for the ride in one way or another. Like whether someone's got laid off and they need a job and someone can hook them up or they need consulting or they need VC advice or whatever it is, we have this really core group that have brought each other along. And I think that is because we were in the trenches with each other and we learned about each other and we have respect for each other. So network and be a good person, it pays off tenfold for you no matter where you go in your career. Oh my gosh. And there's a reason that it everybody talks about the value of your network because you you see all of these people who become dot connectors as their career. Yeah, sure, they're angel investors. Yeah, sure, they're advisors. Yeah, sure, they're marketers. They're brand builders. They're whatever. But they're dot connectors. They're people connectors. And you can always make sure that you're stimulated and pushing yourself in the right direction when you know the right people. So love that takeaway. For me, I think it was actually like a sub-theme and a lot of what Maggie was talking about around focus and how she doesn't invest in founders that have too many priorities because she knows that you're not going to get things done when you don't have a clear direction of what you're trying to accomplish. And even for herself, knowing her lane and what types of brands that she invests in, to me, focus is everything. And if people could just take the 45 minutes, however long it takes to sit down, evaluate your core strengths and evaluate what value you provide to whatever company or you know person you're supporting, it will go such a long way because it's true alignment at that point, not just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So anyways... I am fired up by this episode. I'm so excited for part two when we get around to that. If you liked this episode and if you like our content, head over to Spotify, rate our podcast, they get it, and let us know. Yes. And as Maggie said, if you want her to come back on with one of her founders to like dive deep on how they work together, DM us, let us know, and we will make that happen for you. And until next week, have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye.